Talk. One of you. You can tell what this means to me. The story itself was not much to my liking, but I think it showed an uncanny understanding of what most people like. You have nothing to say to me? Nothing to ask me? I recognized your voice. Please, your noodle. You're making this so complicated. Am I wrong? How are you supposed to keep all that straight? You lost. I have a life, and it only goes in one direction. Forward. Welcome to Mad Men Men, the weekly show where we discuss a show that used to come out weekly. Now, we are recapping the first season of Mad Men, and we're going to be talking about the rest of Mad Men as well. But I, I want to get something out of the way. You know, okay. it's just going to be two of us for this one. Sure. And I, I hope I hope everyone's okay with that. I, I'm trying to be. Uh, this is your first time listening for some reason, and you haven't listened before and have an idea what we're doing here. I am a big Mad Men fan. My name is John Agurney. I'm a film critic, and I love Mad Men. It's probably my favorite TV show of all time. I've rewatched it many times. But my other host here, Will Ashton from Collider, he never hey. really watched past the first season. Yeah, it was a while ago. Yeah. Uh, I watched it uh, shortly around the time it aired. I, I remember I got the DVDs for it, and I, uh, for some reason, fell behind and never got around to watching the rest of it. So uh, it, it's basically like I'm watching a season for the first time again. I, I kind of remember some things. Actually, this episode, as I was watching it, I felt like I was remembering things uh, as they're happening pretty well. But, you know, the season, it's basically I'm like I'm watching it fresh. And then the other seasons, I'll, I'll be I'll be watching them completely fresh. So yeah. there you go. Yeah, I'm excited about that. We're going to get through the first season. I think it's going to be a fun time. We're almost halfway through. And I think we're getting Are to we? the point where, yeah, the show is starting to find its uh, its kind of identity, hmm. um, I guess, which is fitting, considering it's a show about identity uh, in many ways. And I, you know, I I've talked about this. I've, I came into the show around season four, so I was a little bit later. I came into it while I was in college, and I was studying advertising, and I obviously have been hooked on it ever since. And I always love an excuse to talk Mad Men. We're going to kind of like break down this episode and take a look at what's going on here and the writing and what we think about it at this point. And we, of course, want to guide you all along here. And I wanted to get something clear, too, so people understand. Sure. If you are a first-time watcher of Mad Men, mm -hmm. uh, which similar to Will in some cases, like semi-first-time, sure. we are not going to be talking about anything that happens, nothing that happens past this episode of the yeah. show. Right. So we're not going to be spoiling anything. I mean, so you can first time watch it with us. I mean, I'm not going to say anything. I don't think I'm not. Yeah, you I, I, I don't know if I can. Well, there are anything. some things, you know, a few things you've been spoiled on, which is a unfortunate. Uh, not by choice. I mean, you know, yeah. more by cultural, uh, you know, uh, oasis, I guess, you know, just kind of being present around the time the show was right. on the air. I heard some things. I saw some things. And then uh, I learned about some things some, some other ways. So, uh, you know, mostly indirectly, sometimes not. But, you know. That's right. I'll, and if you come across Will on social media, be nice. Don't spoil sure. him. That would be very, very mean. Uh, and yeah, that wouldn't be cool. I wouldn't be a fan of that. <laughs> so we're going to give kind of a step-by-step -step recap of the episode. And then we'll talk about what we think overall. You know, the first thing to get out about this episode is that um, of the first season, it's a little less subtle in some ways than some of the other episodes. It's pretty on the nose, actually, uh, you know, for better and for worse. There are lots of B and C stories. Uh, we get something with Ken Cosgrove, like his first real B story of the show. Uh, we get a lot of Pete in this episode. We get a little bit of Paul, a little bit of Peggy and Betty. But really, Peggy and Betty's entire storyline really revolves around Don's here. And this is definitely a big Don episode because this marks the first time we get really detailed information about Don's real identity and his past and really what defines him uh, in the show moving forward as somebody mm -hmm. who, what, like what his real motivation is for what he's up to. So the episode starts with Betty and Don. They just got home after an award ceremony. So Don has won an award called the Nuki. And I, I told myself I was going to look this up. Uh, I know it's an advertising age thing, but I, okay. I really had never really heard of it beyond this show. Okay, uh, so I'm sure it's a thing. 
You haven't won one of these in your I have not one of these. Life. Won okay. one of these, no. Not uh, prestigious other, enough to have Well, there are other awards that get brought up in the show from time to time that I have heard of. This is just okay. not one of them, but yeah. Have you, are you, uh, not to put you on the spot, but have you won some awards for your work and advertisement? Yeah, but not me personally. Okay. It's always been something I've been part of more. That's the thing. The stuff that I do is not like how it is in the show where you have like the creative director takes all the credit for something. Yeah. It's very, very different. I mean, that's kind of the funny thing about uh, Don this episode is that he, it seems like he actually won some stuff personally, but he tries to discredit. He says like, it's more about like the team or like my boss won this award or what have you. He, He doesn't really want to. Uh, you know, be the recipient of an award himself. He feels like, I don't know. I'm curious why you think that is uh, for your well, analysis. He brings it up too at one point. Mm-hmm. Pete is like, oh, that, you know, accounts won the award, you know? Right. It, it, it is a little dicey. Um, there's, I do think there is a reason, but I think it's something that would kind of spoil a character relationship then spoil something that happens later in the show that I don't want to get well, into actually. I was wondering if it had to do uh, with, like you said, about identity, the sense that because Don doesn't truly feel he is this person, like he's putting on a persona that he doesn't really feel like he earned it because he's no, not. No, I don't think that's done. it. I don't think okay. it's it. Uh, I think um, I have a different read on Don in this episode, honestly. And okay. I have a different read on how Don approaches his advertising life. I do think that is what he wants. He wants recognition and the awards, but he wants it in a different way than I think the other characters do. I don't think he cares about awards as much, but again, that gets into some stuff that I don't want to give away for later in the show. Okay. But I could see why people, why it, that would be like a very valid read if the, you're like kind of coming at this for the first or second time. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I just think it, it kind of adds to the, um, general theme of this episode uh at least as as far as i saw it which is the idea of like all these characters are having trouble or directly or indirectly are blending their personal and their professional lives and we see that with this episode you know like he's he has an award that he's bringing home but like he like doesn't really feel comfortable about it you know in in this first scene he's like kind of drunk off of the you know uh, drunk off alcohol but also kind of like drunk off the you know the lifestyle and all this stuff and it is throughout for reasons we'll discuss later there is like this blending of like you know his characters personal lives are interfering with their work lives and vice versa and there's a lot of boundaries that get kind of pushed and pulled in different ways and stuff and uh yeah i mean not to get into it already but i yeah i mean i think what this episode is getting at is that of all of the characters, Don is one of the few characters here who wants to be defined as the creative director, the award-winning creative director that he is trying to redefine himself as. Whereas everybody else in Sterling Cooper, as we'll talk about, they want to change, they, they want to be redefined as somebody else. Pete doesn't want to just be the accounts guy. He wants to be Don Draper. Like we see that in the first episode. We see that Pete also wants to have like a novel. Paul Kinsey wants to have a novel. Like these guys want to have a separation between and they they want to brag about their achievements they don't want the private you know sort of the you know, secret life thing they want everybody to know how great they are yeah and that is like the defining difference between them mm-hmm. and don like that's not what don's after and the show is investigating that so uh, as you're alluding to yeah they wake up hungover mm-hmm. and you know it the, again very on the nose sally kind of like bursts in it's like what's that and then you know it's an mm-hmm. award blah 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 roger also won the award and then it you know the horseshoe kind of just like falls and yeah it all it all speaks to the facade of it's uh you know yeah. very 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 good stuff um, this was a by the way written by matthew weiner and directed by leslie gladder so now when don gets to the office uh he comes a little late obviously and he's you know welcomed by a bunch of people who are congratulating him um allison the receptionist even says like hey you know advertising age ran a picture and his picture's in the newspaper and peggy his secretary peggy olsen tells him that you know they they were waiting for him uh pete and paul uh but don was so late that they kind of left and you know don kind of jokes around calls him rude And then uh, he goes into the office and he sees that Ken is around um, and Ken actually wrote a short story. And this is like one of the inciting incidents of the story that kind of the B story is that Ken Cosgrove, who is an account guy, just like Pete, he Mm -hmm. wrote a short story for the Atlantic. And 
it's kind of taken everybody by surprise. They're like, wait, you did that? You know, they they can't believe it. Uh, It's called Tapping a Maple on a Cold Vermont Morning. Uh, I was curious what you thought of that title. Uh, Very Uh, Atlantic. Yeah, I was going to say, well, I mean, that was the big thing, right? It's not solely that he wrote, you know, a short story. He got published in The Atlantic, which, I mean, you know, certainly a prestigious publication now. I mean, I imagine it, it was back then, too, maybe even more so than it is now. Uh, you know, it's not an easy thing. I've never been published in the Atlantic. I don't think you have either. Uh, it's no small feats. And we learned that, yeah, Ken not only, uh, wrote the short story, like he doesn't even consider himself a short story writer. He wants to fancy himself as a novelist. I think he says he has he's written uh, two novels. Now he hasn't published two novels, but he's written them. Yeah. Yeah. I forget. He, he detailed one of them and it sounded, uh, nonspecific. But, um, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, both of them, uh, do relate to the main thrust of this episode, actually, uh, like Don's story, mm-hmm. uh, about family. Like one of them is about a woman being left to farm. And the only person who will help her is this boy. Mm-hmm. And it, it's extremely like directly calling to like Don, you know, and the stuff that happens with him and his family in this, but uh, yeah, we'll get to that, I guess. But yeah, he, I think the thing that strikes Paul and Pete so much, like clearly they're jealous as heck. Sure. And one of the things that makes them jealous is that they, they can't understand, like they, they actually like criticize him for not talking about it before he was published, which mm-hmm. is so funny because like, of course, like if he had said anything beforehand, it would have come off as bragging. It would have come out right. as sort of like boasting about something that wasn't even successful yet. So he was biding his time until he actually had something to speak of, you know, in regards to this accomplishment. And they, of course, will find any reason to try to like, you know, bring him down a peg, which they, oh, they, yeah. they can't. Bring him yeah. down to Peggy Olson. Sure. Um, yeah, I was going to ask you. I mean, you not only work in advertisement, but you are a writer and published author yourself. Do you find yourself relating to Ken Cosgrove or uh, <laughs> Pete? And uh, what's the other guy's name? Paul. Uh, Paul. Do you find yourself relating more to Pete or Paul in your workplace? I'm not going to lie to you, Will. This, this really hits home. It does rub people off the wrong way, you know? I think a lot of people in advertising, a lot of people in copywriting look at something like a novel as way more difficult of a thing to pull off. And sure. you chase and you chase at advertising stuff and, and copywriting. And like there are these small achievements like winning an award that seem really cool in the moment. But then when you look at like, oh, but this person wrote a novel. And that's always going to, I think, be more prestigious. It's always going to be more like, you know, the mark of a successful writer than anything having to do with advertising. That's just how it will always be, right? Because it's if art. you say so, yeah. But I think that's what Matthew Weiner is getting at, right? Mm-hmm. He's clearly somebody who, as a TV writer, he clearly values you know the making of art in that respect as you know perceived to be more superior than what the advertising people are doing. And so I'd like that he's doing that. He's being pretty overt about it. Yeah, I mean, there is a uh, as been dis- as we probably discussed, and other people have discussed certainly the a very literary quality to uh, Mad Men. And maybe there's this idea that like, you know, Matthew Weiner for several years had to kind of prove himself as a writer, but he had the the pilot for Mad Men mm-hmm. written for a long time. And that was like his pet project. And maybe there's something uh, feeding into this script as far as, you know, like this is like my, you know, my true like thing I want to make. But it's like, yeah, well, where is this script for uh, whatever, you know, insert show here? The only one I could I know that he wrote before this was for The Sopranos. So I don't think that qualifies, but. I'm sure he's written for like sitcoms and other things where, you know, maybe the work wasn't quite as fulfilling and he had, you know, other grander, loftier uh, ambitions creatively. So maybe that feeds into this. I don't know. It's a mysterious thing. It really is. And, you know, the whole idea of like all all those like little passive aggressive moments where even like Roger at one point is ribbing into Ken, you know, kind of like backhanded compliments with him uh, being like, oh, that's going to keep you working here. Only a hundred dollars a month. That's what Don says. And that uh, passive aggressiveness, yeah. oh boy, that yeah. Oof. But any, oh yeah, I was also gonna say that uh, even um, uh, is it Roger in the boardroom meeting? He's like, he's like, oh, it's not really my thing. Like he like says some yeah, yeah, weirdly like passly, passive aggressive compliment. You know, like a backhand compliment of some sort. Yeah, to some people would like this, right? Yeah, or something like that. Yeah, it was like it was harsh, and Ken didn't even seem offended by. It. He was just like, yeah, you know. Well, it's kind of similar to when like Pete is sort of like, hey, that's actually a compliment when, mm-hmm. you know, Trudy tells him, you know, <laughs> you know, that it's too modern and he takes it a certain way. But we'll yeah. get to that, of course. Sure. Yeah, yeah. 
Now, they're in this meeting to discuss uh, an account for Liberty Capital Savings. I think that's the same as Liberty Mutual, but it was called that at the time, I want to say. And, you know, they're, they're trying to come up with like a, a new concept because it's not working. The idea of like uh, trying to bring women in to visit the bank. And so Don comes up with an idea that, you know, that they should have an executive account. So a private account solely for businessmen, you know. Paul Kinsey at one point is just like statements come to the office. You know, it's like very, very um, Mad Men, <laughs> that entire thing. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, the idea like, you know, kind of merging, as we discussed before, the private with the business, you know, mm-hmm. their business thing is like trying to find a way for people to have private expenses and all that, you know. And it's striking, well. right, that it's something that Pete and Paul click with immediately. But Ken is a little, you can tell Ken's a little bit like, huh, okay. Uh, he doesn't seem to be the same, you know, and I love what they're doing with Ken in this episode because in that first episode, in the first couple of episodes, Ken is just like an immature skirt chaser, honestly. And um, I know I've read an interview where I think Matthew Weiner was talking about how Ken was supposed to be kind of a really small character at first, but they rewrote him to be more like they, they kind of kept him in the show because he did so well. And this was one of the first episodes where they really started to bring more material in for him and the backstory, like him being from Vermont and having this sort of like writing, you know, shtick. So uh, I like how this episode sets that stuff up a lot. My main question is how does Sal feel about all this? We don't see him at no, all. No, we don't get bit. Sal. He gets a mention at one point. It's like that's Sal's problem to deal with. The fact that they have yeah. to publish this in like a small magazine. But I, I wanted to see his uh, wry looks and his, you know. <laughs> judgmental gaze at any uh, given moment. I, I feel like I was robbed of that. That was my big complaint. My chief who would, complaint. Who would live? This yeah. yeah, especially in an episode about like your personal life and like keeping secrets. Hmm. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, maybe it would have been too overt or whatever, but I, I felt like this right. episode There's was lesser. I feel like this episode was lesser by not having some Sal content. I agree. I agree completely. So then we have uh, Peggy. She's trying to intercom into Don's office, but she interrupts a phone call that he's having with Midge. Uh, Midge has called in for a tryst for him to rush over to her place and for them to have sex. And immediately, like, Peggy is kind of horrified. She didn't mean to listen in, but then she, of course, discovers uh, Don's infidelity. Big revelation. Uh, She hangs up. Don comes out. He says that he has to uh, leave, but he'll be back after lunch. So Peggy knows that he's lying, and this this marks a pretty noti- notable shift in the dynamic between Don and Peggy, which will come up later. So afterward, uh, we go back to Pete's office, and this is like the part where they're really starting to lay into Ken's short story, and they're thinking like, ah, oh, you know, Ken Ken shouldn't be as successful as he is because the implication being that he comes from a working class family, and for Pete, that's pretty rich right he's a dykeman uh he's only in the position he is because of his connections and his name so to him it makes no sense that like ken would be the one who beat them to having something published in the atlantic was that pun intended that you did there i i don't know that's for for you to decide fair enough (laughs) that's for you to decide um Paul, Paul is even more jealous because he, unlike Pete, he's actually a writer. He's mentioned his novel in the show before. And there's even a funny part where he mentions that he has his own story about like, can you imagine how good my story would be where he says he gets drunk and ends up in Jersey City with a bunch of African-Americans. But he, of course, does not say African-Americans. And he's like, the surprising thing is we all got along. Could you imagine how good that story could be? And Harry's immediate reaction is no. <laughs> I mean... You, you never know. I mean, a similar story won Best Picture only a few years ago with yeah. Green Book. So Green Book. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Paul Kinsey. He, uh, we're not dumb to him, that's for sure, in this, uh, this entire show. So then we go to Midge's apartment, and Don tells Midge that, hey, like, you know, they've literally just had sex. He waits until after sex to bring this up, and he tells her that she can't call him at work. And uh, I really like this entire exchange they have, you know, where she sure. kind of reflects on like she doesn't like how he hurt her feelings by like waiting until, you know, they've had sex for her, him to f- make her feel bad about everything hmm. about for calling him. And she also has an interesting, you know, exchange with him about how when he comes in to see her, he immediately seems preoccupied, but then he switches gears, she says, and it's like he becomes a different person. And this is our first hint at to what is happening here? Why is Don an adulterer? And as this episode kind of lays out, it's because even though he tries so hard to stop being Dick Whitman, his real self, 
he becomes Dick Whitman in his affairs. He has, it's like he can't resist, like he can't uh, stop himself because it is part of what keeps him sane. Uh, theoretically, that's kind of what it's implying. Uh, what was your read on that, though? I mean, certainly that's where I come at it. Yeah, I mean, you know, like we said, I mean, that that, that is so core to uh, Don's identity, I feel, in this, uh, at least his first season, is this, like, you know, trying to balance his different personas, trying to, like, you know, like like we said, uh, coalesce that into one Don Draper, but whether it's, you know, balancing the work and home life or trying to assume the identity of Don, but ultimately still kind of being Dick. It's just something he can never, like he, he hides it. Well, he manages it pretty well, all things considered, but he, he still can't quite get it all quite right. Yeah. I mean, it speaks to why it's so jarring for Peggy, because like you said, he hides it. Well, it's something that she didn't expect from him because of his previous behavior. He's, you know, defended her from the sort of like boys will be boys mentality of the office. He pushed away her advances and was like clear about there being boundaries. And so for her to see that, oh, oh actually there's a, there's a real Dawn. There's another layer to this person uh, is a big moment for her character. So then we go to Pete again. And so Pete is at home with Trudy and uh, she's reading his short story. This, this is probably my favorite part of the whole episode. <laughs> um, he's clearly still upset about how Ken has found so much success and, you know, she's been reading, his wife has been reading his short story and she remarks that, like I said before, she finds it a bit too modern. She's like, I love the classics. And he's a little bit like, well, that's kind of a compliment, but he's still a little bit like, uh, you know, why doesn't she like it? And she says, I, I just think it's odd that the bear is talking. <laughs> I love the, I love that line. I love the delivery of the line. And I love Pete's response to it, that he's just like, it's what it's what the bear is imagining, or it's what the hunter is imagining the bear to be thinking. And keep that in mind, Will, because the idea of uh, Pete being obsessed with like a boy hunting is very, very relevant to his character. Um, okay. I think we've even already seen... I, have we already seen any moments that have played up on this? Or I might be uh, moving, moving too far ahead, actually. I don't think so. I was going to say, I felt like... Uh, and it may be because, you know, something more, this is going to, uh, contradict what I was going to say, but I felt like the story, like one of the, the jokes about it was that it didn't feel very personal for him. Like he was just writing for the no, sake of it. No, it's not honest. Well, that's what I mean. Yeah. So it's like, it feels like, like, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what Ken Cosgrove's story was, uh, his short story was really like, but I, I imagine it came from some honest place, which is why it got published in the Atlantic. That's but why yeah. it's literally called Tapping a Maple on a Cold Vermont Morning, which right. is where he's from. Right. So that's all you need to know in the sense of like, that is real. That is about right. his past. And that's mm -hmm. why it works. Whereas yeah. that's the thing with Pete. Pete is not honest. He's trying to be somebody he's not. He's trying to write right. a story about a hunter. He's not a hunter. He's not mm -hmm. talking to bears. He's not who he purports to be. Mm -hmm. And it's the opposite thing that Don has. It's the whole point of the episode because mm -hmm. Don's thing, because you'll, you'll notice like not to skip too far ahead. He, you know, Roger at one point says that like, you'll, you'll find the first 10 pages of a novel and, and every, and everybody's desk. Right. And you know, Don jokes and is like uh, five, you know, he's like, Oh, he's only written five. He hasn't written any. Mm -hmm. Why, why hasn't, cause we literally see Don open up his drawer in this episode and there's no novel there. There's something else, sure. but there's no novel. And the reason there's no novel is because to write, to create art, like Matthew Weiner is saying here, you have to accept your past and you have to understand and apply your past to your art. It doesn't have to be exactly your story, but that's where art comes from. It comes from a place of honesty. And that's why, like, Don would never write an, a novel. How could he? He's, that's why he is so comfortable in the advertising world. That's why I was pushing back a little bit in the very beginning about the whole, like him wanting to be in the advertising world. I think that's where he's comfortable because advertising is all fake. He can sort of like well, spin it in a different way. I was saying that he was uncomfortable with, uh, assuming the award, like the, the, like that the award belonged to him. Not that he was uncomfortable with advertising. I think he's uh, just being fake modest in that okay. respect. Fair enough. That, that's that's my take on that. I, I and yeah, you know, I, I think we could easily like look at it a bunch of different perspectives. But I say I say that for a reason I can't get into. But okay. So Pete then tells Trudy, he's like, "Well, you know what? You should talk to uh, you know Charlie Fittich. He works in the big publishing uh, world. Um, maybe maybe Charlie Fittich could have uh, Pete's story published." But then she's like, uh, "You know." Charlie was, uh, you know, she reveals that like, this is the guy she lost her virginity to. And, um, you know, she's, she's told Pete the truth about this. Apparently he was really upset about it, but he kind of was telling her, he's like, well, this makes up for that. 
Um, so Pete is so horrifically loathsome and ambitious, he will put his wife in that position to get a story published. Um, to, like I think he says, show Charlie Fittich. Like, let's show him what he's been missing. It's pretty oh, deranged. Yeah. Um, but I, I really like, I, I, we've seen Pete do some pretty despicable stuff so far. This is definitely yeah. one of the highlights, uh, I think, so far in the show. And it's not even the lowest he gets in this episode. It's not. Yeah. Not even close. Um, or I guess a little close. Who knows? I mean, so it's that, touching yeah. the, the the low point for sure right. of this episode, but not quite there yet. So the next morning, Don arrives at the office and he's greeted by Peggy, who is still clearly jarred. Like she she usually like checks in and, and greets him, but she doesn't say anything. And I think because what happened the day before is still sticking with her and she's not sure what to make of it. Um, but she does say that uh, the, the meeting, it's called a traffic meeting where they're going to be discussing how everything that's going on with accounts um, has already started in the conference room. And this is the scene we've already alluded to already where they're, you know, digging a can of bits and, you know, kind of, kind of being like, oh, you know, the, this, I think, so Roger says the story itself wasn't much to my liking, but I think it showed an uncanny understanding of what most people like. And yeah, as you already remarked, it's pretty brutal, pretty pretty harsh but ken takes like you said he takes it with a plum because i think ken understands he's like oh these idiots are so jealous and he he's fine he's totally fine and i i think this is the most likable we've seen ken so far yeah but i mean yeah i would would definitely agree with that but i mean like i don't know i just feel like like i can tell with paul and pete and even to some respect don he can kind of like yeah they don't really appreciate this but they're they're at least jealous or they at least like uh, are impressed they did this i feel like with uh with roger's compliment like he doesn't even you know it doesn't even phase him he's just kind of yeah, like yeah care. yeah it's just like all right that fits his yeah. character which i mean maybe like you said there is some truth the idea that, like oh he doesn't get it because he's like a geezer and you know he doesn't really like uh un- appreciate what i'm doing it's too new age for him or whatever or something yeah. but yeah well there's a crucial moment here too where you know, they're going through their clients and what's going on. And there's a small thing here where Ken kind of says, you know, oh, yeah, here's what's going on with, uh, I think it was Maytag. And Joan is kind of like, uh, well, have you followed up with them or whatever it is? And he's like, oh, yeah, last week, but then I'll, I'll do that, you know. And this is a subtle hint that I think the key to Ken Cosgrove and what separates him from his coworkers, particularly Pete, particularly Paul, and even Don, is he has a healthy work-life balance. He... As you can kind of see, he keeps the two worlds separate, but he does it in a way where he prioritizes his personal life, his hobbies, his skills, and things like that, so that he's not dominated by what's going on in the workplace. And it leads to a decent amount of success for the guy. And I think it's it's an interesting commentary on the different way that he tackles work-life balance compared to his coworkers, particularly Don, who is obsessed and it is like such a workaholic go back to the office or say he's going back to the office and his wife will just believe him because it's it's not and uh yeah a lot a lot of things thrown around especially by betty in this episode as to how don is a workaholic yep (laughs) that's that um all right so peggy interrupts the meeting and she comes up to don and this is the big this is the big moment where she says a man named adam whitman is in the reception area waiting for Don. And Don is clearly thrown by this. I forget to, I think they've already mentioned that his name is Dick Whitman, right? Or is this the first yes. time? Well, we no, because there was the, uh, the, the meeting with, uh, what's his face, that guy on the train. That's uh, right. Yes. Yes. I, I, I knew there was one other time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Adam Whitman. Uh, so mm-hmm. we, we get a hint as to who that might be, huh? Yeah, but yeah, and that in the scene before it was like on the train, like we said, like even then though he's kind of like looking over his shoulder, making sure no one yeah. is looking out for him. Now he's like throwing off his game. He's at work. He thought this was a safe space for the right. Don Draper persona. Now there's somebody from his past who knows him, the real him, coming into his place, and uh, yeah, he's you know we're seeing him uh, more protrude than we ever seen Don. Yeah, Draper. he's sweating. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he's like, okay, I've, I've got to deal with this. He, he leaves and he, he meets up with Adam and Adam lights up when he sees Don and he's a little bit taken by like Don. He thinks Don can't recognize him. He's like, I know I'm grown up, but Dick, it's me, your little brother. So we find out that Adam is his little brother. He said, tells John, uh, Don, <laughs> before he didn't sit there, uh, he works as a janitor at the empire state building, American calculator, he says. And apparently he saw Don's picture in advertising age, the one that was referenced earlier. And Don 
kind of is reluctant at first. He's trying to like deny it and be like, I don't know who you are. No, no, no. Um, but then, yeah, Adam, Adam knows how to get him to sort of own up to it. And it's like, you can't even look at me. Like he, he clearly sees through what Don's trying to do. So Don finally gives in and tells him that he can meet him at a nearby diner. The same mm-hmm. diner, I think we were in an episode one or two, the one where they, I think it was episode two. Where oh they, yeah, that Peggy was episode two. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. It's a diner called Delight. It's been in a lot of movies, actually. It's in Los Angeles. Uh, it's yeah. not in operation today anymore, but uh, it's actually been in a lot of other shows and movies like uh, Seven and Training Day. Pretty well-known diner. Cool. So pretty recognizable, too, if, uh, for people who are paying very close attention to locations and movies and shows, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So... They, uh, you know, Don goes back to the conference room. He's clearly preoccupied with what just happened. Um, he's going to yeah. have to meet Adam in a little bit, and he's very distant. Um, finally, uh, they end the meeting. Roger ha- has one of his only few fun quips of the episode. Not enough Roger in this episode. That's my main complaint. But he's like, you know, all right, glad everyone <laughs> can make it sound like they are working so hard. Um, mm-hmm. Great, great Roger line there. Then we go back to the diner. And Don is still trying to deny he's Dick Whitman and, you know, to no avail. Like, it's not working. Clearly not working. He asked Don, he's like, why did you do what you, you know, what you did? And finally, Don acknowledges the truth and he says, I couldn't go back there. And he finds out that uh, his mother is dead, uh, but not really his mother. Uh, he actually shows a little bit of anger at the mention of her. Uh, like, she wasn't my mother. She never let me forget that. When he tells her she died of stomach cancer, he replies, good like it's yeah. heavy stuff um, yeah he's uh heavy. yeah he's 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 making it clear that he is not a fan of that woman in particular or uh the uncle who also passed uncle mac. away yeah yeah not so uncle mac has passed as well and so it's just adam from his past um and it's not a lot of detail and i don't want to say anything else because i want you to experience the show as it is but you know sure. it, it certainly is implying that they're all they have left of each other. Mm-hmm. Um, Adam even mentions at one point that he's like, I, he knew he saw Don at one point in his uniform when he was just eight years old. He knew that he wasn't dead, but he didn't know what to do about it. Didn't know how to, you know, deal with it. Uh, at one point, he's like, what kind of a name is Donald Draper? <laughs> like, it's very funny. Uh, my only response to that though was like, well, I mean, it's better than Dick Whitman. I mean, <laughs> that is true. Yeah, <laughs> just saying. Um, my only real complaint. I mean, maybe you'll disagree with this, but I feel like. Adam is maybe a little too guileless. I don't know if that's more performancing or how it's written or directed, but I feel like he's maybe a little like he's perceived a little bit too much of a, as an innocent. Like, I feel like, you know, like especially for someone around his age, like he'd have a little bit more of a like head on his shoulders. Like he's kind of like so head in the clouds about meeting uh, Don slash Dick again. But then again, like he, he thought this was like impossible. Like it's something he's been dreaming about. He mentions that several times. Like yeah. he's like, like I, you know, I only a day ago I didn't think this was even possible. Now you're here, but that's why I, I think it still, works. Sure, because his reaction is so like devastating because this is what he's always wanted, and like you even see it unravel though. It's like it starts off from such a place of like you know jubilee, and it devolves into like panic because he's like he even kind of mentions he's like. I was like imagining this and this is it. Like this is, and he, he even has, he still has that dumb smile on his face, but you can tell the pain behind it. Yeah. I actually think it's pretty brilliant the way that uh, the actor is doing it here. I, I forget, sorry, the name of the actor. Okay. I feel terrible. Fair enough. I, I think it's more of a writing thing than his performance. I think his performance is quite good. It also plays into a reoccurring theme of this show, which is expectations versus reality. Yeah. You could even say, Hey, speaking of which, I mean, 500 days of summer. Uh, I think that movie had the delight diner in it as well. So sure. Well, combination there. But I mean, so, like the way you like want to imagine things and how you want to things to be perceived versus how they are in reality, you know, cornerstone of advertisement. Things mm-hmm. aren't always as you uh, want them to be portrayed. Yeah. I mean, Adam mentions, you know, he, he wants to eat, but, you know, he, he can't bring himself to because he's just so like overcome by everything. And he asked Don is like, did you miss me at all? And and I always am kind of taken by this line. It surprised me a lot the first time when I watched it, but Don says, of course I did. And I think that's when we see the gear switch. But what the gear switch that Midge was talking about, this is, I think, when he slides into being Dick Whitman. And he's kind of like letting the the mirage go away. Um, so he apologizes, but, you know, Adam's like, you know, I'm not, he, he tries to say, he's like, he's not mad at Don. He just wants to be part of his life. He tries to find out, like, you know, do you have a wife? Do you have kids? But then that's when... Don switches back 
He's back to being Don Draper. He says he's leaving. You know, at first he offers to pay for lunch, but he was like, no, I'm not paying for your lunch because this never happened. This never happened. Keep that line in mind, Will Ashton. And that is an important line of the show. Harsh. Tells Adam to forget everything and that he's never going to see or hear from him again. Mm-hmm. So we'll see if that's true. It's not. Because uh, yeah. later in this episode. <laughs> so we go back to Pete's story. It's hard to kind of go back to Pete's story too, because at this point I'm just like, I care way more about the Don and Adam thing, but okay. Uh, she goes over to Charlie Fittish's office. This is what Trudy's doing for lunch. You know what I mean? And, uh, you know, she tries to see if he'll publish Pete's story, but Charlie's sort of like, well, he even says, he's like, I would have rather had lunch with you, but she's just, instead of like just briefly meeting, but, um, yeah, no, he just, he just wants to hook up with Trudy and she has a type. Well, she has such a type because this dude sucks. He's such a jerk. Like he's literally like, you know, he's like, I want to be with you. Could just, I can keep a secret. And she's just like, no, I'm married. I'm a newlywed. What the heck? And then she's even like, you, maybe you could just think like maybe in old age. She's like, I don't want you when you're old. And I'm like, oh my gosh, get out of there. I did, um, uh, I did find it, uh, in a sort of very tragic way. I did find it kind of funny that Trudy was still trying to find some sort of compromise. Like, just like, well, maybe in old age, you know, like, <laughs> like trying to find some sort of like solution to like, you know, she's well, she's trying to compromise with him. Yeah, right. well, that's what I'm saying. Like compromise. Yeah. Like she's such like in such a, you know, uh, mess up situation. She's still trying to like kind of act level headed and, you know, right. kind of like fair minded and all this stuff. And uh, there is kind of a sad sort of funny quality to to that little line, I thought. But yeah, this whole scene, actually, this is one of the scenes that. Uh, when it was playing out or like just when as soon as I saw that desk, I was like, oh, wait, I remember this scene. I remember how it plays out. <laughs> so it's certainly uncomfortable to rewatch for me. I don't know about you. You've seen this show oh, yeah. several times, but it, it felt even worse for me to watch the second time. It's like, uh, got to get this uh, icky scene uh, twice. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I agree that, uh, you know, Trudy is put in a compromised position. She tries her best to act uh, reasonable. Clearly, that's uh, you know not really a, a viable situation for this uh, confrontation. So, yeah, <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's not a not a fun time for the two parties involved or the third party being the audience. <laughs> All right, so we go back to Sterling Cooper and Betty has arrived with Bobby and Sally. Um, they have a scheduled family portrait, but Don has clearly forgotten about it. Peggy didn't even get a chance to remind Don about it because she thinks that Don is out with Midge. Um, that's her assumption, and it's kind of ironic considering uh, because what he's really doing is actually like arguably worse, possibly. Like, because I mean, hiding his entire like identity, his name, and everything from Betty. I would argue, I mean, you don't have to split hairs, I guess, but like an affair is also horrific. It's terrible. But there are two sides. I guess they're both on like the side of terrible. So that's that. But Well, I mean, uh, like you say, we're kind of splitting hairs here. But yeah. I mean, if you want to look at it from Don's perspective, I, I feel like he, he doesn't see himself as Dick. He is like he's compartmentalizing in his, in his mind. He's like, I am Don Draper and I'm giving myself to you betty draper like that's who i want you to fall in love with like it's not like he's like hiding that identity out of like spite it's something i would argue though when he's with um rachel um earlier in the season i think he's that's the don persona so it's like i think he does cheat as dick and he cheats as don sure but i mean yeah i I, like i said splitting hairs but i feel like when he's cheating you know, with with Midge, he's you know just cheating in general. You know, just cheating, cheating. Yeah, you just know. cheating. Yeah, what are you doing? It's like going, yeah, it's like going to the break room for the guy. Um, so, like I said, um, Peggy's a little bit frantic because she doesn't know how to like. She doesn't know like should she lie and tell Betty he's somewhere he isn't. She doesn't know what to do about it. So she put she sends him to Don's office, tries to buy time. Uh, she goes over to jo- Joan and is just like, what should I do? And she accidentally alludes to that maybe she does know where Don is. And then Joan dangles out of her Peggy. So she guilt trips Peggy into telling her what Don is up to. And she can you know, tells Joan kind of ridiculously that um, he's basically having an affair. And Joan even says, like, yeah, you should not have told me that. Um, I wouldn't if I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to tell anybody, but you should not have told me that speaking to one of the main points of the episode uh, that you know there's this expectation that the men of sterling cooper men in general 
have their private lives and Mm -hmm. women in their position are, their job is to keep those lives private. And it is uh, definitely a commentary on the state of affairs in the 1960s. I'll definitely say that. Yeah, but also like, I mean, I feel like, uh, remind me Christina Hendricks character's name. Um, Joan Holloway? Joan. Joan. Yeah, I feel like she like kind of lust over that that boundary of like putting the um the personal in the professional, even to the point where while uh you know Peggy's in the office trying to buy time for Dawn, she calls and is like, you know, what's going on? She wants to gossip. She she you know, she's like the one character who really wants to relish the like boundaries being pushed between the professional and the personal. Which is it was just a uh, true to her character. So Peggy takes Joan's advice, um, decides to just say like she doesn't know where he is, basically just tell the truth and um, let Don come up with an excuse and just try to hold them off for the time being. So she gets some candy bars, gives them to the kids. Kids have chocolate all over their faces, and they're hanging out in Don's office. And this is when Betty starts probing Peggy for information because Betty understands that Peggy, as Don's secretary, probably knows more about his life than she does, and. In a way, she has a point. Um, and, you know, she asked Peggy some personal questions, too. It's like, oh, do you have a steady? And, uh, you know, that's all that. Uh, but Joan even calls at one point to check in about the whole thing. Uh, Don does eventually arrive. And he's like, oh, yeah, I was in the print. I was at the printer. You know, Don's go-to excuse. Um, he kind of, uh, there's, there's a moment here where Don seems to have some respect for Peggy for covering for him and not, uh, not basically making the whole thing worse for the guy. Um, yeah, he seems to have a little bit of respect for her, ironically, because she has lost a little bit of respect for him in this moment. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> I thought you were going to say something else, and I was like, all right, lay in yeah. it. No, I mean, you know, I like the shot where she's like in the office, but she it's like the camera's pulling back. She's like losing, yeah. you know, like you said, like uh, losing that touch. She's kind of she drifting exhales, away from. Yeah. Oof. You feel it. Good stuff. Good stuff. Very good stuff. Very good stuff. Yeah. Um, okay. So then let's see here. We go right to the home where Betty sees the proofs of the photo shoots. Um, I mean, I think they're saying this happened the next day. She already has the photos. Um, she's with Francine. This is the one time we have a Betty moment outside of like her interacting with Don or Peggy. Um, but you know, she's there with Francine and, uh, Francine even kind of says something cause, she, cause so Betty says like, oh, Don's always, Don's late, you know, and Francine is like, Carlton's always late kind of a little bit of a subtle thing. It's like, oh, it's Carlton, uh, probably because he's cheating. I mean, we already kind of saw in uh, Marriage of Figaro that Carlton has a little bit of a, you know, the, the thing with like uh, Helen Bishop. And Helen yeah, Bishop gets were, mentioned here too. And Don caught them, right? Don what? Didn't Don catch uh, him cheating in the, the birthday party? He didn't See? catch him cheating. He, he caught him and Helen Bishop like having a conversation, but it's not implied that Don saw anything in prior or improper okay. going who, on. Who do you see making out? Uh, oh, he saw just the, the regular normal neighbors who had oh, like okay. a functional marriage. <laughs> and that was probably, oh, that, was, yeah, yeah. that was probably more sickening to Don than <laughs> if he had seen Helen Bishop and Carlton making out. He probably saw the two people who are actually married to each other and like each other. He's probably like disgusting. The heck is this? In my house. <laughs> exactly. Uh, uh, Betty kind of, she kind of starts talking about how she's like, I should get the royal treatment when I get into Don's office. Like she should be some kind of trophy or something. I, I, I always find this moment kind of weird too. It's like, well, it's a creative director. Like chill out, Betty, like the royal treatment. Like, yeah, okay. I thought that was a little much. I mean, yeah, I don't know. Like calm I down. Your highness. Get it. You know, yeah. it's like, okay. Yeah. Um, also, I, I think the photo, well, the, we, we only see a couple photos, but, you know, the first one's pretty bad that we see. But the they're second one, bad. you know, they're not great, but that's the one we see is, uh, is Don's okay. looking at the camera like he just saw somebody walk into a diner who isn't a white Protestant. <laughs> like, come on. But I mean, like, is it much worse than most family photos? Like, yeah, always I would awkward. say so. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like uh, I see most family photos I see aren't that great. Sorry. If you say so, I, <laughs> I won't say I'm an expert. Um, but yeah, they, they kind of remark that like they, they can't really connect. Like when they go into like their husband's offices, there's clearly like a disconnect. Like they don't feel like they belong. And they both kind of agree that outside of Manhattan, they think their husbands are better. So then we go to the Liberty Capital Savings uh, meeting um, with the clients. And it works out pretty well. And something that, that's kind of interesting about this is 
Don clearly still has Adam on his mind. Uh, there's a moment, so he's kind of like preoccupied with that. He's a little distant in this meeting. Uh, Pete Campbell is still kind of like reeling from the the situation uh, where he basically was, uh, you know, chastised for you know the Bethlehem Steel thing. He's he's definitely like kissing up to Don, you know, being like Don had this Roman candle of an idea. Okay, Pete. Um, but what's interesting here is that Don turns it over to Paul to give the pitch. Paul gets a little bit of like a minor win here. He gets to sell the the pitch to the client and it goes really well. In fact, the client even suggests that it could be executive private account, which is a combination of Don and Paul's idea because earlier Paul had suggested private account and Don was like executive account. Client kind of just went with both, not even knowing that Paul had come up with that. And it, it's all speaking, of course, the idea of like taking credit for something and Pete gets this win he gets this moment, but he still lashes out at Ken Cosgrove. He still kind of sees what's going on with Ken, and he just can't stomach it. He can't stand it, and so he uh, he rips out you know the paper uh, in the Atlantic with Ken, and pretty brutal, pretty brutal. Uh, he's you know trying to like show him up, but then later Ken, of course, uh, you know he he goes up to Ken and he's like, hey, you know, I'm sorry, you know, like, mm-hmm. I I didn't know, you know I knew I was like competing with all these other guys. I didn't know I was competing with you. And then Ken destroys him, just like obliterates him with two words, you lost. Mm-hmm. Pretty, pretty good stuff. Yeah. <sighs> but yeah. So then Don goes um, back to his office. He's sorting through his mail. He notices that he has an envelope addressed to Don Draper. And then he finds a photograph of himself when he was 20 years old in his uniform sitting next to Adam, who at the time was, I guess, nine. Um which I guess it was like a little bit of a flub, right? Because I, I thought it was supposed to say that Adam was eight when he died, but maybe I'm misremembering. Um, so then he sees, though, that the hotel stationery shows Adam's address and his room number, which gives Don an idea. But first, we go back to Pete. Uh, Pete is home where he tells Trudy the good news. Or no, Trudy tells him the good news that Charlie offered to publish a story, but in Boy's Life magazine. Um, Pete is super bitter and angry about this because he's like, it could have been the New Yorker. And he basically suggests that you know, she should have prostituted herself to get him into the New Yorker. She even says like, I could have yeah. done it. And like the implication is obvious. Well, uh, is it New Yorker? Or is it the, it's like, there's another publication. I think she said, she mentions a couple, but the New Yorker, yeah. I think is the one that he mentions. Right. No, that is the one he mentions. Yeah. Um, yeah. For, well, for one, uh, boy's life, such a good line, such a good joke. Uh, you know, Pete is always he wants to a, be a man and <laughs> wants to be a man. He's always going to be a, a child in a way, yeah. or at least in his first season, him getting denigrated to, you know, being, well, not only in boys life, but I think they had to pay to be in boys. A life, $40 right? fee yeah, to around $400. Fee. <laughs> it's pretty yeah. like in today's standard. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, that was, uh, that was a great line. But yeah, like I said, as we alluded to earlier, this is kind of uh, Pete's low point for this episode, basically saying that like he, he's judging his wife for not, uh, you know, sleeping with a, you know, a former flame to get her husband's literary work published in a fine establishment like the New Yorker. So, right. He's yeah, not a good he, guy in this episode. Yeah, she's, she has every right to look at the situation and be like, she doesn't understand why he would put her in that position, she says. And like you can kind of see the sort of like the facade of their marriage like breaking down. She's starting to see him who for who he really is, which arguably, why did it take you so long? Um, but OK, so we go to, yeah, back you know, to the, the, the honeymoon phase, you know. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, we, we go back to the Draper residence and uh, Don and Betty are discussing some of their summer vacationing plans, uh, but he's very distracted about the whole thing. Uh, He goes to his study where he burns the photograph that Adam gave him, and then he uses the number to call Adam um, and arranges to go see him. He opens up a briefcase, and then he puts something in it, but we don't see what it is. He goes over to Adam's apartment and or hotel room, whichever it is. It's kind Mm -hmm. of this dilapidated place, as you can imagine. It's a very tense scene, and there's a moment where he's just like, Uncle Mac thought you were soft. And, you know, but you're not soft or whatever it is. And then Don's like, no, I'm not. And they're setting it up actually in kind of, I think Weiner is playing with the expectation of like in a lesser show, Don would have shot at, he would have killed him, right? No loose ends and everything because most TV shows, that's what we would be getting at, right? It's the cheap thrills of TV. I think uh, Emily Vanderwerf or Emily St. James 
has mentioned that when she was writing her essays on Mad Men of like, that's one of the things that separated that first season from other shows at the time in 2007. It wasn't trying to be lost. It wasn't trying to be, you know, just this kind of like short term, like cheap thrill kind of TV show. It was playing at something deeper. And I think that deep meaning or what she's saying that the show gets at is the idea that like, it's honest. It's, it's more about like, what would somebody realistically do in this situation? And what it ends up being is Don tries to buy Adam off, gives him $5,000, which basically would be like what his salary for an entire year close to it. Um, yeah, well, I did the math. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause this is, um, 1962, right? 1960. Well, in any case, I, I mean, maybe it might be off slightly, but uh, it should be forty eight thousand dollars, three hundred and ninety three dollars or he yeah, had forty eight thousand three hundred and ninety three dollars and thirty eight cents. Yeah, it's it's pretty absurd. Uh, it's a lot of money. Twenty savings. Twenty twenty two standards. Yeah. 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 It's it's certainly, you know, a ploy. Uh, he wants Adam to leave and to reinvent himself, to never see him again and to do what Don did. Um, they hug. Adam is super upset. Don leaves. He goes back home, and then he tells Betty, uh, you know, that, that it's okay. You know, we get, they can go to the Cape or whatever. And you see Don rejecting his real family, and at least for the time being, showing that he's open to receiving Betty's family, the family that he married into is Don Draper. And the show, this episode ends where it began with him and Betty going to sleep in their bedroom. Um, and it's it's one of the most like TV episodes of this show in the sense that it's very standalone. It ends exact almost exactly where it begins in sure. a lot of ways. And you you could watch this as like a prototypical pilot uh, in some respects if you really wanted to. Um, but I, I do want to say before we kind of wrap things up here, I love the three scenes with Don and Adam. They play out like if you just took them out of this episode. If you took them out of this entire series and you just had a short story of a play where you had two people have the conversations that they have, you start with like Don going into the waiting room and talking to Adam, and then you have them in the diner and then you finish it in this room. Brilliant. I think it would be brilliant. Um, in fact, I'd love to see somebody try to like pull that off because you don't need anything else in this episode. You don't need anything else in the show. It all speaks for itself. And it's like, to me, the best example of how great this writing is, that it can just exist like that and still be so good. Yeah, I mean, if anything, it would be kind of intriguing on its own because you're like, you're fed all this information, but you had to kind of yeah, unravel for you a little bit. But it's all detailed out in their conversation, but not in like an exposition heavy way. Like it's all pretty, you know, And it honest. speaks to how, yeah, if Don was honest about his past, if he's honest about the situation, he could write a heck of a short story. <laughs> He sure. could write an amazing novel, but he's not, he's never going to do that. How could he, you know, like yeah, that's just not like what he has decided he wants to do for himself. Yeah. So yeah, you know, one less writer at, at the, at the, the publishing house, uh, maybe not so bad, but you know, it, it gives, uh, Don, you know, less, uh, closure, I guess in his personal life. So that's, that's a fault, I guess, but I don't know. So overall, did you like this episode? Well, what do you think? It's a, it's a good episode. I don't know if it's like the best episode we've done so far, but it's certainly a good one. Yeah, it's not the best. I think it has aspects of some of the the best of the season. It has like really good stuff in it, but yeah, it's it doesn't come together as well as some of the other ones. It's no marriage of Figaro. Sure. I think it's, you know, like we said before, I think the themes of it are very present. I think they are satisfactory. I think it comes together in a good way. Uh, I like, like you said, how standalone it is. But it does. I when I think about it, as this conversation is probably detailed, I think a lot about like how the themes of it resonate, rather than like how does the characters really stand out, with the exception of the um, Don slash Dick Adam stuff. So, yeah, I like I like how the episode title it doesn't just refer to Adam's room number, it doesn't just refer to how much money that Don gives him, but also it's the fifth episode. Um, it's kind of nice whenever. They play around with that, uh, you know, find those like fun coincidences that they can just kind of do. Sure. 5G, more like 5K. The same thing. 5Gs, Well, Like you don't even have Gs, to. Yeah, no. Do you want to run? I, I think, the, at least Don didn't run a 5K in this episode. That would have been a little much. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no. Yeah. 5Gs. I also, 
I, I, I also just love what this episode begins to say about the American dream as it relates to the 1960s, because Don is like, if you really look at it superficially, he's a self-made man. I know we've talked about this already. And this episode is where we get to really more clearly see the downsides of how the American dream has worked out for him because he started from nothing. And there's something respectable about how he kind of built his, all of this stuff, um, you know, on his own without, you know, inheriting anything. This episode talks about that with Pete, you know, being somebody who didn't have to work as hard to get as successful as he was. But this does show the downside, the downside being that he has to leave others behind. He has to reject his family. There's even like an adage that a lot of people like very capitalist people like to say, it's like, we got to learn from the past, but you have to look forward to succeed. This notion that you can't succeed by embracing the past. And I, I kind of like how Matthew Weiner is poking at that a bit and, and showing that it's not so cut and dry, which is very interesting for a show that was, again, airing like at the end of like the fall of 2007. I guess and in this case it was late summer. And also a show that's like so indebted to the past just by design too, you know. That's that's so what? That's like so like indebted to the past, like so about, right. you know, the 60s, about our relationship to the past as far as just like nostalgia, our perception of it versus reality and all that jazz. No, that's a, that's a really great point because Weiner clearly understands that for us to learn, actually learn from the past, you have to embrace with the honest truths about what life was like in the 1960s, the fact that there was a lot of sexism, that there was a lot of racism, and that the 50s and 60s often get whitewashed and sugarcoated for you know this sort of like mythos, American mythos that came to a lot of prominence in certain sections of the country uh, in the years that followed, like through the baby boomer generation. So yeah, I, I love that Matthew Weiner has a point of view with this show, and he always digs at it, and he finds like tons of new ways to say similar things, but in enlightening ways. Uh, I think that's what make, well, that's what makes him a really great showrunner and a really great writer and director, in my opinion. And uh, yeah, this is another good showcase of that. Not the best episode of the season, but um, definitely an important one uh, in the sense that it certainly lays the groundwork for a lot of what we're going to see later in the show. Any last thoughts on this, though? I, I, the only other thing I'll say is not my favorite Pete story. Um, although I love that scene with him and Trudy and the bear. But other sure. than that, it's not my, I felt like it's a little bit of trodden ground. Like, I think we got it at this point with Pete. It doesn't really add that much new or insight uh, to the guy, but it's okay. Yeah. I mean, more of a, with the exception of uh, Don, I guess more of a standout episode for Ken Cosgrove. Yep. Uh, but yeah, Ken otherwise, Cosgrove. I mean, Accounts. yeah. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, I think uh, what you're saying before is why it is fun to talk about this show in podcast form like it it has such you know big grand lofty thoughts to say about it but each episode works really well as a you know standalone installment something you kind of ruminate on and kind of think about and, and how each episode tackles a lot of similar themes but in different and often resonant ways you know it's a it's a good show i'd say yeah maybe I, you would say I the same thing <laughs> I would say keep in mind too, you know, if you're watching this show for the first time, a lot of people, you know, this question gets brought up a lot. Who is Don Draper? And this is an episode that kind of answers the question, but not really. And I think the point is less of answering the question and more so pointing out that if Don answered that question, or if he was willing to answer that question and live it out, he would probably find what he seems to be searching for. Now, whether or not that's true is up to the the viewer. And so uh, I look forward to uh, watching more of the show with you, Will, and seeing where you land on all that. Sure. Uh, one final thing I'll discuss with you, and uh, you can indulge this conversation as much or as, as little as possible, but something I've been thinking about. Okay. Um, so I've been seeing more recently, uh, and I, I don't know if this is uh, the case for you because we have different timelines as we have discussed on uh, Cinemaholics, but uh, I, I've seen people really kind of questioning on Twitter and different social media feeds, like, why is it that uh, John Hamm hasn't really found a lot of success um, outside of Mad Men as far as like his cinematic like career? An equal like, amount of success, you mean? Because I mean, he's well, found just, success, like good roles and like, he's, well, he's still been, working. Well, he's been in like good movies, but he's never really like the stand up part of those films. Maybe the only real exception would be something like like the town or bridesmaids, but like it's it's usually only really in like the comedy stuff. Like I said, like bridesmaids or like Thirty Rock, or uh, I haven't. He has, I didn't watch he has a it, small but, role in Top Gun Maverick. Yeah, sure, but like it never really feels like he's like exceptional. Uh, 
or even really particularly great uh, outside of, uh, you know, playing Don Draper I would say, on Madden. I would say he's great in Baby Driver, um, one of my favorite roles from him. And I would also say he's pretty great in Bad Times at the El Royale. So it has happened. I think he's fine in both. I don't think he really stands out much in either, to be Oh, different, but you know. Okay. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I just feel like there's something kind of interesting about the idea of like John Hamm is another, you know, a guy who uh, he wanted to go into this business more as like a comedy actor, as like an improv actor. And he found yeah. himself in the arguably. I mean, he was in he was in a lot of different kinds of shows, not really like straight up comedy. When he, he started out in things like Ally McBeal, right? Like very like yeah, one but I mean, there and he gravitated more towards comedy than drama. Like it was a departure for him to play Don Draper. From what I can um, tell. I mean, it was I think it was less like comedy and more sort of like, you know, network dramas. But not like the kind of drama that Mad Men is, because he was he but, was in like Gilmore Girls and The Division. Yeah. <laughs> he was in a lot of The Division. But it seems like he excels more, like we said, like when he gets to be a little bit looser, when like people allow him to not really be a Don Draper type, but to like kind of play against type, play against his good looks. Certainly, like Bridesmaid, like I, I said, like he he is like a good looking, handsome guy, but he's such like an ignorant doofus who's like you know good at sex but just can't really read the room or anything like that which is like almost the opposite of uh don draper like someone who just can't really read and perceive people's emotions stuff like that which i think it's just weird to me that like he you know it's, it's like, like someone like brian cranston uh outside of breaking bad has like never really found another role with the exception i guess of lyndon b johnson on broadway uh like that that that's equaled Walter White, but he's like kind of found like a, a way to balance between comedy and drama and like, you know, excel enough to like, you know, prove his talents in different films and TV shows. Um, I'm trying to think of like some other actors from prestige dramas. I mean, certainly like Jim Gaff or Jim, <laughs> James Gandolfini, uh, unfortunately, who passed away. But like before that, he was doing a lot of really interesting things as an actor, uh, you know, playing more like tender like emotional roles like stuff that kind of played against his image as uh uh tony soprano certainly i think his role as carol and where the wild things are is uh maybe his best performance outside of uh, tony soprano and i just think it's interesting that for as incredible as uh john ham has been on this show that he's never really found a way to to play or subvert that much and really like excel in a way that like someone like elizabeth moss who's like just been on you know such a rise past the show's uh run it just mm-hmm. he hasn't had that same success and i feel like it might just be because he hasn't really uh found or allowed himself to find the roles that really play to his strengths as an actor i mean i get what you're saying i think it's uh, it's not that i disagree it's just that i i don't think he's really tried that many times he's too old to kind of have that like he's not a will smith right off a of fresh prince of bel-air and I think the Don Draper performance is so iconic that the roles that he ends up getting that are probably the most intriguing to him are ones that sort of play off of his sort of Don Draper persona, his old fashioned looks, like you were saying. And I don't think that he is uh, that kind of actor who has found himself, you know, getting into a new kind of niche. You know, and I, I think that, like you said, it's, it's happened with Brian Cranston. You know, like he he had a couple of big roles right off of Breaking Bad, like Godzilla and everything, but. I mean, over time, he eventually just started getting kind of like main roles in smaller movies and, and nothing huge in terms of like awards. Like, like Trumbo well, was like one of the last few, right? You say that, but, you know, he's starring in Jerry and Marge Go Large, <laughs> which is going to probably win him a couple Oscars, maybe even Emmy. I don't know. I think I, I think that uh, John Hamm has, could have like a really big role for him coming up, either in movies or TV. I would suspect TV is more likely. And uh, I know, isn't he going to be the main guy in um, Fargo the next season? Yeah, which, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting, I guess. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know if that's uh, an upgrade or a denigration for him but um, at this point. But, yeah, I mean, you know, it's not like he's, like, hurting for work or anything. Like you said, he's nah. in Top Gun Maverick, which is the biggest movie in the world right now. So Yeah, you know, he's, I mean, he's an actor in his 50s who still looks like he's in his 40s. And I think he's just at an interesting point in his career. And I think that like a new era of roles for him is probably just around the corner. And he has great connections by all accounts. He's a really great actor to work with. So I, I think that like good stuff is 
ahead of him. I don't know if there'll be anything as good as Mad Men, but I honestly, I don't even think he cares (laughs) at this point. He's probably just having fun with the rules that he's taking. Well, it looks like he was uh, in a film that either just premiered or will premiere at the uh, Tribeca Film Festival called Quarter Office, which stars uh, Danny Pudi. That's the Joaquin Back movie? uh, Yeah. So, I don't know. I mean, you know, just the poster alone for this looks kind of fun. It could look like it looks like he's kind of playing against his Don Draper persona has kind of a more like uh, Weasley look to him. So I don't know. Maybe he will finally get that role that like allows him to kind of diversify away from the Don Draper persona that he's been uh, a role that's kind of like shadowed and uh, and maybe in maybe some cases uh, prevented him from really excelling past uh, his time on the show. But I don't know. It is something I found kind of interesting to think about. Well, we'll have to re-examine that as we move forward with this show. But with that, until the next episode of Mad Men Men, we've been a couple of mad men. A couple, but not a few. <laughs>